Hi, Ron here, and welcome. We love that you've come to join us here and listen to a lot of our episodes. Please help us continue with this by supporting us through either joining the Barack Center at thebarackcenter.com or joining us at the Fringe Church at thefringechurch.com and sharing and donating through those sources. And once again, thank you uh, about the church and how important it is. It's probably pushing it a bit far, but one of the fathers said, you cannot have God for a father unless you have the church for a mother, (laughs) which uh, I think does push it too far. But the point is still true. Father, we are called to be your bride, your partners in your mission to a hurting world, to a world that needs redemption. So, Father, we bring the offerings that we have made during this week. Lord, offerings of cash, offerings of time, offerings of craftsmanship, offerings of care, offerings of social skills, offerings of concern. Father, we bring all of this to you now as we are together and hold it up and say, Lord, receive these as our gift back to you. Father, we pray for the prosperity of the church. We have a role to be mum to our suburb. Father, help us to um, to be that mum, to do it well, and, Father, to have everything we need. Lord, your word says that we should abound to every good work. Father, we pray for this church that we will indeed abound to good works, not limp along. And, Father, these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now can I preach? <laughs> okay. Well, it's a, it's a strange... Hold the mic. Okay. Sorry, folks. We're just getting a, a range of things absolutely right here. And one of them is just how we manage the microphones. So, yep. No, no, no. Not like that. N- never like that. More like this. Okay. So, sorry, I'm getting coached. And uh, the volume in here is all up and down and over the place, which is sort of exciting. Uh, but we will, we will persevere and we will overcome. Anyway, Acts chapter 7, um, starting at verse 51. Perhaps a strange pick for Mother's Day, but surprisingly appropriate. A great pick for the fifth Sunday of Easter. And we're going to spend some time looking at this story of tremendous, horrible violence. Now, the reason it's a good pick is this. Anecdotal word from a doctor, uh, I think it was this week past. He said, our accident and emergency wards have had a tremendous reduction in road trauma and virtually no sport injuries. That has been somewhat offset by trauma from domestic and family violence. That just cut me to the quick. I thought a measurable offset for the capacity we save from road and sports trauma picked up by the way that we wound one another in families. So I thought let's just go straight to that today. And then this passage popped up as one of the set readings for today and it's just a great opportunity to talk to that stuff. So Acts um, chapter 7, starting at verse 51. Stephen um, has been appointed as one of the deacons of the early church in Jerusalem, the earliest church in Jerusalem. He's a, a, a Greek convert to Judaism who has now converted to Christ. 
He's been appointed to, to run the social justice program of the church, the compassion ministries of the church. But the guys who are appointed to that task are described as full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is certainly a deacon, but he is a magnificent preacher of the gospel to his dying breath. He is a man whom signs and wonders follow, and it was these deacons who wound up at the forefront of the spread of the church into the Greek world. And so the um, the synagogue of uh, the freemen has been having an argument with Stephen, and they've been debating and talking, and things have gone wrong. And the, the bosses of the synagogue are feeling a bit like, well, we're not getting anywhere with this. And this guy's just wrong. He's He's not teaching the Jewish faith the way we know it should be. So they refer it up the line to the Sanhedrin. And and then this crazy situation breaks out. Stephen, oh boy, he, he gets himself stirred up. And if you read the speech, it's sort of meandering and wandering and, and, and fascinating. But at the end of it, this is how he finishes. Now these are the great fathers and, and leaders of, of the Jewish faith. I mean, this is this is talking to the, the top dogs. <laughs> and this upstart, see, a guy who's been appointed after all to serve tables, he finishes this prolonged attack and says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are virtually uncircumcised, yet just like your ancestors, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. Now, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they got a little upset. Well, actually furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen escalates things no end, full of the Holy Spirit, looks to heaven and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, these guys already want him. They're they're gnashing their teeth angry. They're furious at him. It's a situation of massive argy-bargy. Look, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, everything went pear-shaped. They covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, their witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, this is a fascinating passage, and I need to say at the outset how much of, uh, of what I've read and learned about this passage I'm just not going to share with you. There's just too much there. What happens when we preach this passage is normally we join Stephen in looking to Christ, and we get a hold of this wonderful vision and we talk about the presence of God even on our worst day and, and, and the Trinitarian stuff. I mean, it's fascinating. He actually prays to Jesus to forgive his sins. He's ranking Jesus as God in this passage. And, and the Trinity is, is all present. So there's so much good grist for the mill and all that. We're not going there. 
In a world where the United Nations has to say, can we please be careful of how we treat our women and children? In a world that offsets the, the lowering of A&E cases by family violence, we need to not look up, we need to look down. We need to just take a bystander's view of this. The bystander who just sees a man having rocks aimed at his brains and his heart trying to stop one or the other as he dies in what should be real agony. It's a violent, horrible story. Now the setting is Acts chapter 6 and 7 is a pivot point in the story of the church. Up to chapter 5, the church is entirely a thing in Jerusalem. It's run by the apostles who were trained by the Lord and they are together and those beautiful things that we were reflecting on you know, last week were happening. Chapter 6 and 7 are the change point. And it all starts with that argument in the Jerusalem church between the, the Jewish converts and the bloodline Jews. Various things happen and they appoint some Hellenistic Jews, some converts to these roles and things start to spread rapidly into the Gentile world. And after chapter 7, the action is not in Jerusalem anymore. The councils happen at Jerusalem. Leadership happens at Jerusalem. But the church's action is elsewhere throughout the earth. And Stephen and his story, like a good novelist, Luke takes the story of Stephen and tells it in all its pathos to paint the picture of the times and to highlight the big themes that are going on. Now, what's going on is there's this radical re-estimation of the Jewish faith. Messiah is not waiting for us in the future. Messiah has already come. Massive, massive stuff. And, and frankly, heresy in the extreme. When it says they covered their ears, that comes out of a passage in Deuteronomy. Don't you know, cover your ears. Do not listen to anyone who draws you away from the living God. So they cover their ears and start yelling. And it's literally like in a comedy where someone goes, la, 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 la. That's what they're doing. They simply cannot even hear this dreadful heresy that Stephen is preaching and believing. They run at him. They take him outside the city and they begin to stone him. There's, there's all these parallels to Jesus. You know, in Nazareth, Jesus was dragged outside the city to be thrown off a cliff. That's actually where stoning started. There's a process to stoning that was actually quite humane. You were, oh, I won't go there, it's ugly. But, you know, there, there was, it was designed to be a quick death. And Jesus was dragged outside, more or less according to the rules. Stephen's not. The rules are out the door. Now, it's very strange that these people could do this. How could they get away with capital punishment? They were in a Roman province. Now, there's three theories. One is in AD 37, Pilate was recalled to Rome because of his atrocities and extreme cruelty. And there may have been a period where there was a little bit of, you know, not lawlessness, but things weren't quite as tight as they could have been. It may have been during that period. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think so, though. Rome's hallmark was its law and order and authority. I doubt that they would have thought they had any possibility of getting away with this. Second one was some historians believe that there was a law made that allowed the Jews to provide capital punishment for offences against the temple. They may have been acting under that clause. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. The third one is where I think it really got to. The Sanhedrin and the people around just became a mob. And this is actually a mob lynching. And that to me makes most sense. 
things really escalate when, Je- when Stephen looks up and says, I see Jesus. It's in that moment that it all goes completely wrong. They rush him. Due process is gone. They take him out of the city. The due process for stoning is gone. It's not going to happen. And he's just lying there getting pelted by, by leaders and by onlookers and by others. It's mob action. Stephen's death is actually written in part as a sermon for martyrs. How to die for Jesus. And that, that's really what this passage says. And, and really simply the sermon goes this. Die like Jesus. Pray for your oppressors. Think on the words of Jesus. Put them on your lips. Look for the presence of Jesus even on your death day. Submit yourself to Jesus and Jesus is God. It's going to work out all right. That's literally. Sorry? Okay. <laughs> okay. For those taking notes, um, die like Jesus. Pray for your oppressors. Put the words of Jesus on your lips. Look for the presence of Jesus even in the pain. Submit your life to Christ even on your death day. And always remember that Jesus is God. This is worth it. And please, God, I hope we're not writing that down in expectation that we think we might need that in Australia soon. However, we do have brothers and sisters who do, and that is the, um, that's the sermon. Now, I want to get to the violence, though. Well, that's just by way of introduction. Where does this violence come from? I think it comes from a bit of groupthink, an uncritical just joining in with a mob mentality. It comes from a need to protect our position, whether that's a, an actual position. How many of you have ever said, because I'm the dad, that's why? That's a concern. A woman just put her hand up and said that was me. Well, you know, you preach and the Holy Spirit does what he'll do, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's that. I, I, I have a spot that matters and I'm a very special person. Uh, when people cut me off in traffic and act rudely, I, I just, you know, pray for them in terms of, well, Lord, that person must be a very special person. <laughs> There's a, a sense of loss of control. I'm not in charge anymore and a righteous indignation of that. Things should be in my control. Things should be predictable and they're not anymore. A sense of the loss of cherished ways of being and ways of living. And out of all that comes this faith that the end justifies the means. So we need to get things back under control. We need to get back to normal. I need to guard my place. Things need to be right again. And I will do whatever it takes to achieve that. Now, I'm going to give you a really, really recent, because religious people do this. I'm going to say some stuff about anti-Semitism in a minute. But religious people do this, and we've just had a royal commission in this country. The end was the protection of the good name of the church. I believe in that. I am passionate about protecting the good name of the church. I want the church to shine like a light in a dark generation. But what happened? The end started to justify means. And we started, and I'm saying we because we are one church, the body of Christ. We started burying bad behavior. We started moving people around so that they could do more damage because we didn't want the church to get a bad name. 
And, and, and I can drill this down into local congregations. The stories that I've heard in independent churches, nothing as big as the Catholics, in, in churches in our tradition where appalling things have happened and we have found ways to justify it, sweep it under the, the carpet. I've heard of one church close to me recently where a letter went out saying, thank God for everything that just happened. It got rid of the rubbish from the church. There was some, I don't know, I'm not going to reflect on what it was, obviously, I want to protect the guilty. But this, this attitude of we can, we can say rude things about people, we can kick people out, we can treat people like rubbish, because the end of it is the strength and stability of the church. The end never justifies the means. Jesus on the cross, even now I could call down legions of angels but I can't the process is more important than the destination I must obey the father and dies the end never justifies the means businesses we must make a profit Yes, absolutely. There is no other reason to be in business. But when that end justifies breaches of safety, lies, aggressive tactics, so on, no, just no. And violence comes when we start to believe the end justifies the means. It's a power game. Now, in this one, it started with a real issue. Stephen raised stuff that had to be worked out and there had to be some solution. They played by the rules. They referred it up line and everything went tragically wrong from there as these dynamics broke in and, and really dreadful things started to happen. Now, dreadful things didn't just happen to Stephen. Think about Paul. Paul is standing there. By the way, there are only three visions of the risen Jesus in the book of Acts. The one at the very beginning, this one, and Paul's conversion. I find it fascinating that two out of three have got Paul in them. So there's something really spectacular about that. That's another sermon. But Paul was there approving of this death. We know he had a lot of other blood on his hands. We know that he was a vicious, vicious resistor of the church. And he carried that guilt and shame through his life. And if you get the privilege to read the New Testament in Greek, you'll find they don't do a real good job of translating some parts because you can't read it in church. When he describes his ministry, I was as one untimely born. I don't know what that means. I'll tell you what it means in Greek. You know, you guys look like you got born again and you got these great ministries and something beautiful's coming to birth to you. You know what I feel like? I feel like an abortion, not a birth. That's the state of Paul's self-image. And I believe it's in events like this that he picked it up. There are dreadful consequences for everyone when we start getting into this end justifies the means thinking. It wounds perpetrators. It wounds victims. Survivors carry a heavy, heavy load. Great Mother's Day sermon so far, yes? <laughs> Let's bring this down to Mother's Day. Australian family violence. Now, can I get that, that screen of the two blokes up where we can see it? Has it come up yet? I'm hoping, I'm hoping that what you're looking at 
is a picture of one man and one little boy. This is something when I teach men, I use all the time. The, the simple realities are we in the world see the angry guy, the guy who's acting out, the guy with bald fists and F-bombs and, and, and vicious, powerful words that condemn. This is the guy who intimidates the life out of us. And that's what we all see. But it's that picture of the little boy is what's happening inside him. Now, I've got enough form dealing with violent men to know that's exactly right. We see that angry person. What's driving that angry person is the end is justifying the means. The end is I need to be in control. The end is I need to get the world right again. The end is I'm the man of this house. Listen to me. These are the ends and the, the means become total immediate domination. And we lash out and we get violent. Now, men, listening to this, the big thing is I want us to use this as resource to go and talk to other men. But have you ever been there? Have you ever gotten to that sense of feeling so much like a little kid, so abused yourself, so powerless, so emasculated that you act out in white noise and anger? Because if that's hap- it's happened to me, I'm not going to make any pretense about this. That happens to us. And, you know, I think when the Bible says in weakness strength is perfected, it's talking about exactly this. When we are feeling like that little boy, everything's gone wrong. No one likes me anymore. I'm not respected. I have no place. I have no power. I can't control anything. I'm, I'm not pulling my weight as a breadwinner. I'm, I'm doing drugs rather than feeding the family. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting this woman that I think I love and, and I just hate everything and... It's weakness. And in our weakness, if we could honestly come to God, we spend a lot of time teaching men how to do this. In your weakness, in that moment, Christ's strength can be perfected in you. Stop. Count to ten. And don't just sit there waiting for you to calm down. Sit there waiting for Jesus to come. And the stories, even in the last month, that we have out of the ministry here where violent people, men and women, have taken that moment in their weakness to say, I am not strong, I am weak. I am not feeling powerful, I feel gutted. Jesus, where are you? Now, it sounds really easy when you say it like that. Those of you that have been there know what that costs and know the discipline of soul that it takes to do this. But I am staggered at the testimonies I've heard recently of how the Lord has come and done stuff that that changes, not the anger on the outside, that's just the results of what's going on the inside. He's strengthened that little boy. He's made him feel like he belongs. He's made him feel safe. And that little boy has been able to quieten down and start to think, well, actually, I do need to serve people and look after them. Most scary people are much more scared on the inside than scary. And church, what we have to do is to make ways to go to scary people. Now, look, honestly, sometimes it is psychotic. Sometimes if it really just is, this is a very bad person. That's quite rare. Most of the time, you're looking at photo B. And our mission 
is to get alongside the wounded and heal them. It's what Jesus said, a bruised reed I won't break, a flickering torch I won't extinguish. And and look, so many of the violent men in our culture are bruised reeds and flickering torches. Why, why do you think male suicide is such an issue? It's just a little further down this same road. And our mission as a church is to come and be mother, bring the father and just raise people up again, strengthen them, make them to believe in themselves and start to move forward. We need to get journey mentoring out there somehow. That's got to be our core mission. The fruit of that is staggering in bringing violence to heal. And I'm here to say, on Mother's Day, thinking about the violence in our families and the problems in our men particularly, those affects women too, more or less the same. It's different, but there's a lot of the same stuff. We need a revival. The thing that I have seen, and look, there are plenty of people who've overcome anger, overcome that sort of thinking without any religious experience whatsoever. That's not us. Our job is to preach Jesus and to talk about our certainties and what we know will happen. I know that when Jesus gets hold of a heart, things change. The fruit of that, the results of that are peace, love, self-control. It's natural. It happens. The fruit, the results of Christian community are accountability to that our encouragement to that, are pumping each other up all the time to say, mate, you can do this, you're doing great. No, you blew it, that's all right, we all do. Keep pushing on towards the goal. And if we will do that, we can change the world. We are changing the world, brothers and sisters. We are changing the world. The testimonies around us are mind-blowing in this scale and their beauty. But God... We need a revival. We need people to see Jesus. Because when the end is I see Jesus seated at the right hand of divine majesty, when the end is I just want to be with him, I want to serve him, I want to go there, then everything will point towards that and your behavior is going to sort itself out. We need to see Jesus if our families are going to be what they could be. Some of my finest colleagues right now in both sexes are previously violent people who Jesus has got a hold of. These are people who know how to fight themselves and win. Their end now is not their position, their right, their sense of themselves. Their end is the glory of God in Jesus. Now, I just... I want to finish, but I want to just say one thing about this passage. Very instructive TV show I watched recently. A Jewish poet was talking about anti-Semitism. He said, in his view, Mark's gospel is the neutron bomb for anti-Semitism. I thought, what? And he said, absolutely. He said, here's how it works. By the time the gospels were written, the church was growing in the Gentile world. And they wanted to say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't really Rome that killed Jesus. It was those very, very nasty Jewish people. They were the ones. And so the Gospels are written pointing at the bad, bad Jewish people. The book of Acts is written at the bad, bad Jewish people. And the Gentile world was sort of okay. Because, you know, and, they, and this guy just said that was the marketing approach of early Christianity. 
Now, I'm going to leave it to the history of religions, people, and the philosophers to work that one out. But, man, that grabbed me by the throat because that's what did happen. Jewish people for millennia now have been terrified and gone to water when someone stands up and says, Christ killers. And the church, with its end of wanting to preach the gospel to the whole world, has justified pogroms, genocide, racism, anti-Semitism, and there is no excuse for it. And I don't know if he's right or wrong about his impression of the early church, but when we read these stories, please, you've got to get it front of mind. This is not bad, bad Jewish people. This is an analysis of the violence in all our souls. This is a story about how to suffer well for Jesus' sake. This is a story about the hope that every man, woman and child can have in a world to come where things are put right. And I just really want to underline that today because this stuff can be quietly preached and we walk away even in Sunday school class lessons with a sense of those Jewish people are very, very bad. That's not what this is saying. So I really just want to underline that and and bang that one home because, you know, I worship a Jew is the simple truth. All right. So take homes, the messages. Jesus stands with the little person, the one who's getting beaten up every time. Jesus stands with the abused child, the beaten woman, the bloke who gets beaten up by another bloke. (laughs) Always he's with the victim. Always. And whenever we start to look like the oppressor, those of us who have authority positions in the church have to be so careful of this. When we start to look like, I've got it, you need it, you have to talk to me and I can dictate the terms, something's on this on this spectrum. It's going wrong. Jesus is always with the little guy. Unless you become like little children, he said, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Always with the little one. Can we please remember that? That's why all that church child safe stuff is so important. Always back the one that got broken. It's a Jesus thing to do. Second thing, the biblical traditions about Easter and the appearances of the Lord straight after that are not all victory, wonder, rejoicing. Stephen's story reminds us again, it's a grim reminder. The stakes of this are very high. Stephen, Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. Signs and wonders are done in your, at your hand in the name of Jesus. People believe you when you speak of him. It's wonderful. Are you ready to die for this? The story says that to us. The story talks about what I've been banging on about, so I won't bang any further. I think, though, that when First John talks about the Antichrist is a spirit that has gone out from us, I think that's what this means. Good people go wrong. And we go out in the name of Jesus to do things that are exactly anti-Jesus. Churches do that. And, you know, I reckon the only place where Antichrist can really take root is in the Christian church. No one else is that worried about Jesus. That thing that is the exact opposite, it looks so much like him, but it's the exact opposite. What happens in this story is a reflection of that. People acting in the name of God to commit an anti-God atrocity. And just to say Christians have as much blood on their hands and sin on their conscience as anybody else for that.
You can't read the New Testament without repeatedly reading about violent resistance. Now, I'll close with this. It was sort of funny. I I googled songs about St. Stephen, and I only found one, and it was by, would you believe, the Grateful Dead. It's psychedelic rock. I think you would have to be high to make any sense of the words, but it simply asks one question. Stephen, was it worth it? Great question. I don't, it's not a terrible song to listen to, but it makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. But I thought it's sort of funny that in, in music that you can Google, the Grateful Dead come up as the song about St. Stephen. And the question is, was it worth it? Stephen's answer, I believe, is, of course. Not that I've become perfect, but I press on to capture that for which Christ captured me. I feel like that's been more of a shotgun than a bullet this morning. One thing I would love to do is to take these themes and these ideas out there. I want men, for you particularly, not to be frightened of violent men. If you're not a threat to them directly, you're usually not in any sort of trouble whatsoever. And if you will go in as dad or uncle or friend and just sit with someone who is actually a little boy, you can change their world. Call me, talk to me. I'll coach you on this stuff. It's how to change lives for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, on this Mother's Day, we come to you and bring the families of Australia. Father, families that, like around the world, are marked at the moment in large measure by violence and failure and dysfunction. Father, we rejoice for every healthy family. I'm thinking of families in my street. They're out twice a day walking together. They bought bikes. They're out together. They're doing stuff. They're playing board games. They're not watching as much TV. Magnificent things. But, Father, there's a lot of families where the exact inverse is true and everyone is just trapped in this cycle of dysfunction, powerlessness, conflict, fear, regret, recrimination, And it just spirals on down. So, Father, we bring you our families. We bring you our men. We bring you our kids who are growing up with a sense that the world is actually a scary place and that they are timid, shy little people in it. Some of those are going to grow up and become big, strong men and are going to still feel like that and hurt people will hurt people. Father, can you come? Lord, can you come with a genuine revival? Father, a thing that sweeps through and does something statistically measurable to change lives. Father, can you use us to inspire such a thing to do such a thing? Can you turn our eyes and our hearts to the harvest? Lord, we look around, they are white and ready and there's no one who'll go there. Lord, cause us to Yeah, drink a little concrete and harden up and go. Do exactly what you commanded us, to go into these dark places and let a little light shine. Father, pour out your spirit on this church, on all churches. Father, show us the salvation of God in our times. Restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. And Father, cause us to be a place, a sanctuary of health, of holiness, of repentance, of personal responsibility 
and of humble, gentle living. Father, write this into our DNA and make us very good at it. Father, we pray for such a harvest, Lord, of men and women who will come out of darkness. We read it before. Once you were nothing, now you are the people of God. You are now the priests, the ambassadors of Christ himself. Father, Thank you for listening bring us to people who can join us on that And journey. please, don't forget to sign up to the thebarackcenter.com, fringechurch.com, and help support us so we can reach many more. Thank you again for joining us today.